our country itself is sick. That it's lost its sense of direction. Even its common decency. You don't so much as wiggle the fingers. There's a lot of people saying a lot of things. But in the end, you gotta listen to yourself. In that moment, Elvis the man was sacrificed, and Elvis the god was born. Hello, and welcome to Flashback, American Historians on Movies. I'm Katie Fapp, a doctoral student in American history at the University of Oxford's Rothermere American Institute, and I'm here to explore American history as seen through the lens of America's most popular history maker, Hollywood. Each episode, I'm joined by another historian as we discuss an, a movie that covers their own field of expertise. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Tawana Steptoe, Associate Professor of History at the University of Arizona, to discuss 2022's Elvis, Baz Luhrmann's biopic of the rock and roll icon Elvis Presley. Tawana's research focuses on race, gender, and culture in, a, in the southern and western United States. She is also the host and producer of Soul Stories, a radio program at KXCI Tucson Community Radio, that explores the history of R&B music. Uh, welcome, Tawana. Thanks for having me. No, it's so exciting for you to come on the show. Um, great to see you again after a few years uh, from my undergrad. Uh, and yeah, just great. I'm excited to talk Elvis with you. Yeah, this is such a creative idea for a podcast, history and movies. And I remember when you were in my class, you were already interested in these yes. kinds of questions. So it's exciting yeah. I to think I can, see how that's grown. I, I think I can probably firmly date it to your class. So this is yeah a nice little <laughs> reunion then. So yeah, I guess maybe to start things off, if you want to talk a little bit about your research and maybe how it applies to Elvis. Well, I am mainly a cultural historian and I use music as a lens to talk about U.S. history. And uh, right now, I'm working a lot with histories of rhythm and blues music and all of its offshoots. And of course, rock and roll is one of those very early offshoots of what's called rhythm and blues. So I've been looking at the history of rhythm and blues in a lot of different ways. I've taught a course on how the history of rhythm and blues relates to a larger history of civil rights. And that was something I started off looking at when I wrote my first book, Houston Bound. But Houston Bound ends with the discussion of rhythm and blues music and civil rights. And the ending of that book kind of became the entire focus of what I'm doing now in research. So part of that is with my radio show, Soul Stories. Every week I uncover a different aspect of R&B history. And I call that show The Roots and Branches of Rhythm and Blues because what starts as R&B in the late 1940s just kind of evolves into all of these different forms that were still categorized under the broad umbrella of rhythm and blues by the music industry. So by the 60s, you have soul. By the 70s, funk and disco. You know, so I just thought that rhythm and blues history is a great way to look at the history of the second half of the 20th century. So right now I'm writing a book that is on how rhythm and blues history tells us a history of race, sexuality, and gender through the music and through audience response through the music. So right now, a lot of what I'm doing in public facing research, as well as archival research kind of comes back to using musical culture 
as a lens to talk about race and culture in the United States. Great. I mean, yeah, so much of that is bang on, I guess, in this movie. Uh, and yeah, we'll have lots to talk about, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think actually it was also your, um, uh, your class that kind of introduced me to the idea of um, Elvis as somebody who was, uh, or maybe, oh, but we can get into that, Elvis or Sam Phillips as the synthesizer between country music and R&B. So, yeah, taking it back to the, <laughs> back to 2016. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I guess maybe uh, we can start also start off. Um, thank you for explaining that. Um, I'm really uh, looking forward to your upcoming research as well. Uh, I've already enjoyed the one article you've published on it. But yeah, so let's, what, what's your relationship with maybe the, the movie Elvis, then I guess also the man Elvis or Elvis Presley? Well, the movie Elvis, when it premiered that first weekend, I was getting so many texts from friends <laughs> who kept saying, oh my gosh, you have to see this movie. So much of it is about the kind of stuff that you're writing about. So whether I liked it or not, I was going to have to right. engage. You're going to have to go see it, yeah. <laughs> I was going to have to see it uh, because people were telling me that some of the people that I'm writing about, Sister Rosetta Tharp, Little Richard, mm. Big Mama Thornton, uh, texts from friends were all saying they're all in this movie. Uh, it also is someone who regularly teaches a course called History of the American South. Elvis is a figure in that course. So I knew I'm going to end up teaching it and, and talking about it. So with Elvis, you know, he's a figure that I can't remember not knowing about yeah. in life. And, you know, I realized watching the movie that his death is part of my early, early childhood. He died in 1977. I was barely alive. <laughs> then I was born in the late 1970s. But in my early childhood, he was someone that people still talked about very, mm. you know, very frequently because he was such a huge figure in music and in American culture as a whole that people, I think, were still grappling with his death and what his legacy was going to mean in my early childhood. So I heard about him a lot every year in August. Uh, I would see his movies re-aired on television. Mm. So I, I feel like I've known who Elvis was my entire life. But there were controversies that came with that because I used to hear people on TV refer to him as the king of rock and roll. But then in mm. my household, the name Elvis also had this other meaning. And it his name was always associated with a kind of theft in my family and in my community. So I had these kind of dual images of him, someone who was an innovator from the outside, but in my family, people saying he stole every single thing he did, you know, but right. like I said, that goes back to my early childhood, just always hearing adults talking about him. And then again, seeing him on TV, hearing his music, and then later figuring out, oh, it's because I was being born around the time he died. And right. so, yeah, yeah. So he was just part of the conversation. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I also grew up, uh, Elvis is one of my dad's favorite artists of all time. Um, the joke in the family is that if he had been left alone with the nurse uh, when I was born in the room, then I would have been named Elvis instead of <laughs> Katie. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, present. Also, weirdly, his death. I I remember watching um, uh, like a, a news uh, like a CBS news report or something on the, it must've been the anniversary of his death. 
Um, and I miss, I like missed, you know, they were talking about how he died from um, a drug overdose and I misconstrued, uh, whatever drugs he was taking with Pennzoil, the moving company. So whenever I saw a Pennzoil truck, I was like, they killed Elvis. Um, ah. but <laughs> it is interesting. He's, I mean, he's, yeah, I, I, you know, I was born quite a bit after you. Um, but it is the way it's, you know, he kind of like the lasting legacy, right. And which, which is why this movie was such a big deal. Cause I think it was really bringing Elvis to a new generation of people. Um, I did also did not see, uh, I saw more than one review that mentioned that for younger people, Elvis is somebody who was in Lilo and Stitch, right? Uh, ah. And right, just kind of uh, maybe like we can say like Gen Z, what their relationship with Elvis is um, and the way this movie unpacks his career from, I guess, what Boslerman also characterized as the rebel in his early career to jumpsuit Elvis, which is kind of the caricature I think a lot of us also, uh, at least people my age, have grown up with. Yeah. Uh, so he's just a huge icon. That's, and, you know, when I heard that Bosleman was doing this, I was like, oh, maybe, I mean, I, I really like Bosleman's movies. So I was excited to see that he was undertaking this, like such a grand and like show-stopping person because he's such a grand and show-stopping director. Um, but I was also like, oh, what's he going to do? Because it's so much there to kind of unpack and everything. I was also really glad to see Baz Luhrmann doing this because what it meant is that it wasn't going to be a straightforward biography. And I'm a yeah. little tired of those. <laughs> you know, like after a while, the format just kind of, yeah, you know what it to is. expect. So yeah. I thought, oh, okay, this is going to be a little more impressionistic and maybe bringing something new through that style of storytelling. Right. So I was also excited about that. Yeah, I mean, the music biopic is one of the most, uh, I guess, like, like, I don't even know, like, re reprint it. Like, it, you know, there's so many beats, right, you hit. Um, have you heard of Dewey Cox, the walk hard story? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> after that, how do you not? <laughs> and this movie definitely has its Dewey Cox moments. Um, but I think on the whole, it kind of avoids just becoming a rote kind of uh uh, story of to stardom to failure um and i mean and i guess it, elvis's story is also something that comes with a i mean it comes packaged with a tragic ending right which i imagine must have appealed for lerman since he seems obsessed with the idea that love will kill us all <laughs> across his entire filmography uh, which holds true in this movie as well but uh, so I guess before we can like really, before we like dive in, uh, I will present you with the 60 second plot description. Uh, so I task each guest to describe the plot of the movie in 60 seconds or less. Do you understand the terms of the challenge, Tawana? I think so. I was practicing. But <laughs> oh, great. Okay. <laughs> A lot of people do. You really don't have to, but um, yeah, I mean, it, hey, uh, let's see what your time is then. Uh, let me pull up my stopwatch here. Okay, so you're all ready to go? Yes. Okay, ready, set, go. Elvis is a 2022 film that is a musical biography of Elvis Presley that covers his entire life, going from his childhood in Mississippi, his first days as a recording star in Memphis, and then his rise as an international pop star and an icon of rock and roll music. The film is told, though, through the perspective of his longtime manager, Colonel Tom Parker, a figure who's been notorious 
in discussions of Elvis. And this story kind of shows us Elvis through his perspective, which makes it a little different from some of the other musical biographies that are out there. And in that way, we see Elvis kind of through the gaze of someone else. And in a lot of ways... 60. Continue, no, but continue yes. going on. Don't worry. God, yeah. that went so continue. fast. That went so fast. No, I think it goes I, think I said fast, it. Yeah. I think okay. I got it. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, th I think you bring up yeah, the, the, the Colonel Tom Parker of it all, uh, played by Tom Hanks in the movie. I should say also, uh, yeah, Tom Hanks starring as Colonel Tom Parker and Austin Butler uh, in his, I guess, star-making role as Elvis Presley. Um, but yeah, I think that's really what the interesting thing about this movie is, is that it's told through tom parker's point of view it's not just kind of straightforward like we don't open with elvis as a boy in tupelo mississippi we open with um colonel tom parker on his deathbed <laughs> in right. Vegas. yeah uh so it's an interesting kind of like lens to take the movie through but yeah so i guess uh 60 second plot description out of the way it is yeah like you said following elvis through his life uh, is there any place you would like to start particularly yeah i guess since uh we were talking about, I was kind of going into the overall like plot structure. As you mentioned, okay. it starts at, the, starts at the end of Parker's yes. life, which is 20 years after Elvis has died. Yep. Uh, which I, I thought narratively was a very interesting way to pull us into the story. I totally expected it to start like in a church in Tupelo, Mississippi. That's mm. what I would have expected. <laughs> and we yeah. get there. We get to we get there, yeah. <laughs> Elvis peeking into the tent revival mm -hmm. and kind of watching. We get there pretty soon. But the beginning in Vegas reminded me of, of what you said in the beginning about the kind of jumpsuit Vegas Elvis being yeah. the one that a lot of people remember. And it's starting there. Is a kind mm -hmm. of interesting thing, the reminder of that Vegas Elvis. Right. Uh, and I, I imagine like a way to unpack that kind of myth then, right? And like as Colonel takes us back the years to 1954. Right. It's a sort of like, this is how you remember him in the end. Mm -hmm. But let's rewind and remember the earlier Elvis. And what, one thing that I think I enjoyed about this movie is the reminder that... Elvis was sexy, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that Ve the Vegas Elvis, uh, you know, when, you know, he'd gained some weight, he was older by that point. You know, it, a lot of comedians and everything have kind of made fun of that point in mm -hmm. his career. And so if that's the Elvis that you think of when he first comes to mind, you might forget that early Elvis that the world first saw, you know, shaking it with the longest yep. hair. Yes, and, yes. You know, and uh, I, I think Boz Lerman uh, does a lot to show, to rem make us remember uh, that right. 50s Elvis moment by like, the scene where like the women are just swooning and a few men. Oh, I mean, that's, that's an, yeah, that's a great scene, right? Just kind of the sexual awakening, I guess, of this crowd. Um, yeah. Just seeing the pants shake and um, the way the music is overtaken from Elvis's music to uh, Gary Clark Jr.'s cover of Come Together, just shredding it on the guitar. And <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I think that uh, watching it, I was very interested in how the film also, I think, in some ways queers Elvis in those mm. earlier days, uh, yeah. because very early on, someone makes the comment of, 
how much makeup he's wearing. Mm -hmm. And someone in the crowd yells a homophobic slur at him, which is fairy, right? In the context of the 50s, fairy was uh, a derogatory term for an effeminate man, right? And so very early on, they kind of position him as someone who's very feminine in Mm -hmm. his aesthetic and the way that he looked with the makeup and hair that was considered long for the early Cold War, you know? And and so I I thought that that was an interesting aspect of it. And I wondered how much had uh, the screenwriters read because some of the discussions of Elvis and especially his covering of Mm -hmm. Hound Dog by Big Mama Thornton, which is a song by a woman about a man, right? Mm -hmm. That there have been some scholars who've kind of looked at the way that Elvis didn't only remake the song, he actually does some of Thornton's like vocal vocalizations and things like that. So what does it mean that this young man was in some ways patterning his vocal style from a woman? You know, right. and, and so I wondered, yeah. I, I wondered how much they'd read. <laughs> yeah, I, so yeah, in my, I guess in my prep for this episode, I was trying to figure out like what or where Boz had kind of like, you know, taken his inspiration from, because it's not, I mean, uh, we, co- we covered Lincoln earlier um, this season, and that's very clearly like a uh, team of rival or meant to be a team of rivals adaptation. Although, as we discussed in the episode, it's um, up to debate whether it actually is, could be called, fairly called an uh, adaptation of team of rivals. Um, but there doesn't seem to be like any one thing that uh, Baz and his numerous writing team, let me get all of their names, because this is, uh, I don't have the exact screenplay credits uh with me but it's very interesting if you watch the movie it's like screenplay by Baz Luhrmann and um uh their names uh Sam Brom oh well Sam Brommel Craig Pierce and Jeremy Donner all also worked on it uh but the way the credit structure is set up is very interesting because it's like Baz Luhrmann comma Baz Luhrmann and Sam Brommel comma Craig Pierce uh Baz Luhrmann and Jeremy Donner like it's very layered um but yeah, just, in interviews, Boz just kind of said he referenced it, or I think for the sounds of it, he had maybe a whole bunch of researchers who kind of gathered information about Elvis's life. Yeah, so there's an interesting kind of, um, right, kind of, I guess, like lack, although I have been reading, uh, I've, I started, I did not finish it because of my PhD student, so I have things to do, um, but uh, Peter uh, Gwalnick's biography of Elvis, and there are many moments in this that I think I would not be surprised if they got most of their information from this. Um, also, from what I understand, to be kind of the comprehensive biography of Elvis. But yeah, the, the the queer aspect of the movie is also something that maybe this is like the fourth time I've seen this now because <laughs> I saw it when I first came out and then I saw it with different family and friends throughout the summer who wanted to see it with me. Um, and the... I partially inspired, I think, by um, reading your article on Little Richard and Big Mama Thornton. Um, but the kind of, the, I guess, like the queer aspects of it really stuck out to me this time as well. Um, like you said, the first Louisiana Hayride scene uh, where he kind of comes out onto stage and everybody is aghast at how he looks, which, again, sounds is something I think that um, Gwalnick really hits home in his book as well, where everybody, he just, I mean, to now, right, like you think the 50s, kind of what else you know the kind of the pink jackets and um, the saddle shoes and the hair is very like what we think of the 50s but at the time it was just so alien to the point where people were like it was like an alien had just come out of nowhere like who this kid who's just dressing like this right um that stuck out to me as well and then uh 
also the scene in a senator's home where we see a boy equally enamored with Elvis, uh, along with his sister and his mother when he's performing on national television. Right, right. And, you know, I think uh, that's why I love that they included as uh, kind of performance, little side performances in the film, people like Sister Rosetta Tharp, of course, Big Mama Thornton, and then a scene with Little Richard performing Tutti Fruity. It was kind of an nod toward the fact that uh, a lot of that style, a lot of that, I guess you could call gender bending, was coming out of rhythm and blues music at the time, right? That Little Richard had been a drag performer right before he got signed to a major record deal. So that sort of femininity that you found in Little Richard's style as well with the long hair and the uh, Little Richard talked about how his whoops and everything and the vocalizations that he would do, that he was copying gospel singers, women gospel singers at the time so there's a, a lot of gender ambiguity people playing around with masculinity and femininity blending those things also with uh, big mama thornton as well when they introduce her character she's wearing a tie she was known for wearing masculine attire when she wasn't on stage but as with as we see in the film with elvis where they try to kind of constrain him, you know, get him in the military, you know. Mm -hmm. With Big Mama, her record label, Peacock Records, did something similar in that they tried to fem her up, you know, put her in dresses and pearls. So, you know, a, a lot of the people who were involved with stylistically creating rock and roll out of rhythm and blues were these people who were playing around with what masculinity and femininity meant. You know, it's so it was very interesting, again, to see them acknowledge that in the film and, yeah, putting Elvis in pink and this sort of thing, because, I mean, this stuff was going on in the mid-50s. And it's part of what made rock and roll feel dangerous and subversive mm. to people at home. Talking about Big Mama Thornton and Sister Rosetta Tharp as well, we could maybe talk about... Um, I guess, yeah. Do, do you want to unpack maybe like what the how the movie approaches um, this idea of um, Elvis, the theft, I guess, or the accusation that Elvis is a thief, right, from black culture and R&B? Yeah, it felt yeah. like it felt like the film was trying to take on that idea, right? Like they were trying to address it and they addressed it by constantly putting Elvis in black spaces. Right. We see that at first in Tupelo, where they say when his father was imprisoned, that his mother moves him to the black part of town. And then we see him surrounded by younger black friends. He goes and witnesses a tent revival. And then there's kind of a conversion film or a conversion scene that suggests that this is where some of his style musically yes. and in terms and his of dance, dance and his dance yeah. moves come from that Southern black tent revival kind right. of uh, culture. And uh, then when he's in Memphis, they put him on Bill Street, right? Yes. And Bill Street, of course, is a center of black musical culture in Memphis. And uh, they don't really though, the filmmaker doesn't address though, the question of theft directly, but no, I feel yeah. like by constantly putting Elvis surrounded by black southerners 
that they're making a case for it's not theft, it's love, right? And from mm. that, I'm, I'm playing on, of course, uh, Eric Lott's work, Love and Theft, which is uh, a history of minstrelsy that okay. kind of deals with these ideas. Is it love? Is it theft? Can it mm. be both? Can it be both at the same time? And right. I think this film comes out on wanting us to think, no, it's love. He's a white kid. He grew up with black kids. He yep. loved black people and black culture. So it was natural for him to do this. And it doesn't really address the voices of some African-Americans in the 50s who were talking about the fact that Big Mama Thornton's version of Hound Dog, while it was a rhythm and blues hit, did not have the same success as Elvis's version to the point where so many people didn't even realize it had been made by a black woman first. Same thing with his first record, That's All Right, that a lot yes. of people don't even realize that there was another person who had that as a song uh, earlier. And so, uh, you know, in the 1950s, you had people like Langston Hughes, who was already talking about the disadvantage that black artists faced with these rock and roll covers. Right in Elvis, of course, not the only one who does this. I think the most infamous is probably Pat Boone, who mm. would remake a rhythm and blues record as soon as it appeared and sell far, far more. And uh, artists like Laverne Baker, who uh, constantly complained about this, like there was always a white artist waiting for her to release something so that they could remake it and make more money. So Langston Hughes, you know, the uh, African-American poet and writer, had an article in the Chicago Defender, a black newspaper, that was called something like Highway Robbery in Rhythm and Blues, right? And so this is like the mid 1950s where Hughes and others are starting to say, wait a minute. Yeah. That, right, like this is putting black artists at a disadvantage. The film Elvis does not address that. We don't see any black backlash yeah. to the fact that Elvis records Hound Dog, that he records That's All Right. All mm -hmm. we see is a sort of mutual love and respect right. between Elvis and other black artists, right? And so I, I think that, that it's the film, you know, suggesting that this is more love than theft. But, you know, I, I do think it, it could have been interesting to show a little bit more of that controversy as well. They focus on like a sort of white, middle-class, conservative viewpoint and backlash mm. to Elvis. But I think it could yes. have been an interesting way to complicate that by showing a black backlash to it as well. Yeah, um, no, I think you're spot on. I mean, uh, in an interview with EW, uh, Lerman said that, um, speaking to Sam Bell, who claimed to be um, like friends with Elvis as a kid, uh, they would actually run off to juke joints and gospel tents. Sam told me verbatim these stories. Elvis actually lived in the black community. He didn't just synthesize black music and soul and rhythm and blues, but he loved country as well. And he loved white gospel music and he loved anything new. So again, I think, yeah, Lerman did approach it with this sense of, you know, showing Elvis as a synthesizer, which I think carries through the entire um, length of the movie. Uh, but yeah, I agree. I think other critics have all pointed out that the movie mostly does address the white um, middle-class backlash. Uh, but it would, I think, it kind of just presents these things, right? Like it shows Elvis on Beale Street and appreciating um, kind of the culture. I, that's actually a moment I also picked up from this time. Is as um, Colonel Tom Parker over narration says, I don't know why he was attracted to Beale Street. 
And then you really do spend uh, a good like few minutes just kind of showing what life on Beale Street was like and why kind of suggesting like why it would have been appealing to Elvis while um, Doja Cat's version of Hound Dog plays over. Um, again, I mean, El- Baz Luhrmann as well uh, with the great Gatsby, but I mean, he's always kind of played with new musical styles throughout his movies. Um, but really in the great Gatsby, I think got the most flack for it. Uh, I think by now we've kind of accepted it. Um, but taking hip hop and rap to kind of suggest, you know, to, to older music genres were the hip hop and rap of their days. So in the great Gatsby, he did it with the jazz and with Elvis to a lesser extent, because I think it is, I mean, obviously a more musical film, uh, again, with, uh, the updates to songs like Doja Cat's Hound Dog, um, and others that are scattered throughout the movie. Uh, where is it going? But yes. Oh, and I think the movie is interesting because the movie kind of, it approaches that with the conversation he has with B.B. King um, outside of Club Handy when Elvis is kind of in this crisis of whether he goes to new Elvis and kind of capitulates to uh, white criticism of him or stays true to his roots. But it, you're right, it never really goes far, outright criticism of saying like you are covering uh, your covers of these black songs are doing better than you know they could ever dream of right right you know there there is because of structural inequalities right there yeah. are reasons why a young white man's version of a song is going to outperform a young black woman's version of the same song right yeah. and i think that you know i think the movie could have shown a little more depth in meeting those kinds of uh, questions and and just, you know, addressing some of that, you know, because uh, at the same time, I think that a lot of the music that was coming out of the South did that sort of synthesis, right? Mm. That is, if you live in the South, you know, country music and blues music grow out of the same soil. You know, uh, one of the aspects of Southern music history that I think is fascinating is that Starting in the 1920s, you had so many white Southerners who performed songs that had blues in the title. For example, the song Texas Blues had been remade again and again and again, but categorized as old time music. But the word blues is right there. Whereas a black Southerner who creates a song with blues in the title that still has that AAV repetition 12 bar gets categorized as a race record, right? But Clearly, as early as the 1920s, there's so much crossover between the two. There were Black Southerners who were yodeling on blues records in the 20s and 30s. So people were playing this music sometimes in the same towns at the same time. And in places like Bill Street, historically, those kinds of entertainment districts were interracial. Right, so Elvis would not have been the only white guy on Bill Street right. in, in the 1950s. You certainly had a lot more racial mixing and those kind of entertainment uh, districts in Atlanta. This may have happened on Decatur Street earlier. Of course, New Orleans with Bourbon Street, right? So th- these spaces are kind of known for a kind of mixing and the music that comes out of them mix as well, right? right. So there were all kinds of ways that you could hear that going on. But there's still a reason why when we think about that music and we think about some of the first artists to make it popular, why they are young white men, right? If this is something that lots of folks are doing, why are those the figures that we get it from, you know? So, yeah, I I think that Elvis is important in terms of like popularizing 
certain mm. sounds that were happening in places like Memphis and across the South at the same time. But again, you know, the kind of structural inequalities within the recording industry can determine whose voice we hear the loudest. Which the movie, I guess it's interesting because, I mean, the movie itself, like kind of, you know, basing it on Elvis and Parker's relationship. Um, you kind of have this pivotal moment where he hears Elvis for the first time, his um, cover of That's All Right. Um, and he's confronted with the fact that he's going to be on the Louisiana Hayride. And he's like, well, that can't happen, assuming he's black. And then um, somebody says, no, he's white. And everybody goes, he's white. Like it's, the, it's a kind of like a groundbreaking moment for everybody in this like tent as they're planning um, Hank Snow's tour, that this is a young white boy singing this song. Um, and then it's, it's, yeah, I guess I found it striking that this is a movie, I think at its core about the exploitation of someone, of an artist. And I, yeah, a lot of the conversation around Elvis has always been around exploitation, but whether he exploited the black community. But this is a story about Tom Parker exploiting Elvis for his own financial gains as well. Exactly. And I, I, I got the feeling when I was watching it that they were trying to link that story of Elvis being exploited uh, to this sort of like all artists at this time were exploited. There's just layers to it. But yeah. I think in doing that, they take away some of Elvis's agency. Yeah. He frequently, you know, when we first see him on stage, he's literally shaking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's shaking so hard he can barely go on stage. And mm -hmm. he, it, they do kind of portray him as kind of a pawn. He's mm -hmm. just kind of moved across the industry, moved across the world. He has this opinion. the Vegas show. Exactly, exactly. And so I think that because the movie comes through Colonel Tom Parker's perspective. We don't actually get to see a lot of what did Elvis want? What were his motivations? Yeah. What did he think about the fact that he was uh, frequently linked to black Southern performance styles, right? Mm -hmm. We don't get Elvis's interiority very yeah. much. And, you know, I'm sure that's intentional, right? Like we're, we never get to really know who the true Elvis is, which is realistic. Yes, <laughs> right? yeah, I don't we, think anybody will, right? Yeah. Right, <laughs> we, we know him as an image. And mm -hmm. so the film kind of shows how that image gets constructed. Yes. But, but in that, you know, it really isn't, I think, the Elvis Presley story. Because we don't get his story. We get the gaze onto Elvis, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so that, that's, a, again, something that I think can make this different from the standard musical biographical Music film <laughs> right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, that we so frequently get that it, it causes you to think more about image and the way yes. that these images are crafted. And in this case, how a person see, hears him and sees what the future with this guy, like, hey, this is my new cash cow yeah. and I'm taking this thing all the way to the bank, yeah. right? Which is a common story in music history. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, you know, I, I think the, you know, I, I, not going back to Dewey Cox, but I did, after I saw Elvis the first time, I did like rewant, want to rewatch that movie. <laughs> um, and it is, you know, it, it makes, you know, it kind of hits on all, a lot of the tropes that these music biopics do hit on, um, which is fair, but it's also, it's, they, and they are tropes and they are kind of at, at this point, like just overwrought. Um, 
but there's also a reason why they're so common, right? Like it's not mm -hmm. like there is kind of a sense of like this does just have like the abuse of drugs and um, kind of like the sense that when you're in the recording studio, it's like, holy cow, like what is this like new sound or whatever, right? It is some sort of thing that is replicated amongst these kind of like uh, musical legends that we feel compelled to make uh, stories about. Um, but yeah, I think the idea of like kind of like the layers of image is really interesting. And I think that something that I would guess Lerman is interested in as well, because he does it to an extent in his Great Gatsby adaptation too. Uh, another movie I really enjoy. Uh, but yeah, I think here is maybe like kind of get to this idea of you brought up like, you know, the idea of a cash cow or like milking it, uh, El milking Elvis for money. Uh, the lens that Colonel Tom Parker kind of puts on everything of being uh, a sideshow, right? So he has this uh, uh, carnival or carny background and he's looking for the next, the greatest show in the world, which is what Elvis would eventually call his uh, Vegas show. Uh, but something that excites people when they know they shouldn't like it. And this is what he finds in Elvis. And I think that is kind of like the sexual awakening we were talking about earlier, when all these young teenage girls are presented with Elvis on stage and are just like shocked by the feelings he's making them feel. Right. I, I think that uh, it's a great reminder of that the 50s and early rock and roll are this time of a an acknowledgement of a teen market mm -hmm. and how important teenagers are and especially teenage girls. Right. Yes. So I, I love that the movie kept showing that kind of teen perspective uh, on him. And then in a few cases, as you said, a few of the parents, a few little brothers <laughs> as well. Right. Complicating th that story, too. But that uh, the teen market in the 1950s is such a huge part of the history of popular music. And this moment when especially what young people are listening to is wildly different from what their parents are listening to. And you see a lot of hand wringing over that in 1950s press, right? That it's maybe in the 1930s, an entire family could listen to Benny Goodman together and, right. and enjoy it. But by the time we get to the mid 1950s, parents are like, turn that noise off, right? <laughs> They're not enjoying the sounds of Elvis or Chuck Berry or Little Richard. So right. there's a generational gap uh, mm -hmm. in the 1950s, but it's against that backdrop of the Cold War where right. you're supposed to have this like normative heteronuclear family, right? The TV sitcom image and rock and roll just constantly disrupts that, yes. <laughs> disrupts that kind of national project, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, that idea of danger Yes. around the music. I think that's why the, the 50s part of the movie were definitely my favorites. Okay. I was wondering, yeah, because the movie is very much like kind of three acts. You have like 1950s Elvis uh, and then his 60s kind of movie uh, time and then his, you know, the final, the 70s with his uh, Vegas show. Right. Uh, yeah. And it, yeah, the, I love the, 50s, the 50s. It was it was fun. And, right, and the 50s also anchors it in... Um, the kind of the Jim Crow South or the, the twilight years, of the Jim Crow South as well. Um, so you mentioned kind of like parents hand wringing over, over um, uh, Elvis and what he means to their children. And uh, I, let me see, what's his name? Uh, I don't think I wrote his name down, but, oh, here we go. Senator Eastland from Mississippi, who was kind of the, uh, he's not, he's named a little bit later, um, 
but who is kind of the person who takes on, I guess, the face of racism and segregation in this movie. He says, uh, the obscenity and vulgarity of this rock and roll music is obviously a means by which the white man and his children can be driven to the level of the Negro. Uh, so this, the tail end of the 1950s part is really kind of addressing uh, Jim Crow and segregation um, and those kind of miscegenation fears as well. Yes, and in some cases, uh, I'm married to an historian too, and we were rewatching it this weekend, mm. so it'd be fresh in my mind for this conversation. Yes. <laughs> and this time around, I was especially noticing there are some direct quotes from. Oh, are they? they are direct quotes, okay. and uh, one of them was from the White Citizens Council, okay. who, uh, if people aren't familiar with that history, the I describe the White Citizens Council as kind of the Ku Klux Klan in a three-piece suit, right? These were folks who mobilized after the Brown v. Board of Education decision in 1954. They mobilized to oppose racial integration in public schools, but they didn't bomb out their opponents like the Klan did. Instead, they used economic and political intimidation. And white citizens councils across the South actually set up task force, task forces to go after and investigate rock and roll music, which mm. at the time, when you look at what the white citizens councils were saying, they saw it as black music, right? And they were very concerned that music was integrating their children at the same time that the Supreme Court was. Right. And so uh, in one case, there's a, a flyer from a white citizens council in Alabama that talks about warning white parents against this music. And I have in my classes, I quote from it. And mm. I was amazed when watching Elvis to hear that quote <laughs> in the <laughs> film. So I was like, ooh, ooh, screenwriters doing their primary research there. Yes, we love to see it. <laughs> like to see it. So I, that was spot on accurate in terms of the way, I mean, to our ears, to someone who doesn't know the history, that mm. might seem over the top. Like, really? They were really saying that? Yes, they were. And but, yes, people organized against rock and roll music. So, you know, the fact that he pretty much had to leave the country and go into the military to clean right. up his image, that's real. You know, uh, by 1960, some of the most controversial figures in rock and roll music in some kind of way had been institutionalized, right? If Elvis is sent into the military with his hair cut and a uniform on, uh, Chuck Berry was in prison, you know? Whoa, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Chuck Berry goes to uh, prison. Uh, he's for violating the Man Act. Oh, uh, okay. Yes, a, a young fan who turned out to be 13 who he thought was 21. He says he thought she was 21. Okay. They kind of, she kind of goes on tour with the band okay. and Barry ends up uh, convicted of violation of the Man Act, which was transporting women across state lines for immoral purposes. And yes. the immoral purposes is very vague, of course, right? But yep. Barry sentenced in 1960. So some of the people who were the most transgressive folks who crossed those racial lines were the mm. ones who kind of had to be neutralized. And it's right. the military for Elvis, it's prison for Chuck Berry Chuck because Barry. because rock and roll was such a threat at that time. Right. 
which I think is like I think yeah the movie gets across uh in a great way I think it also that the kind of uh uh climax of that I guess arc is um Elvis at Restwood Park on July 4th daring to sing trouble and be very there's also this kind of question of whether he's going to stay stick to being this like new Elvis which is like family friendly and uh, approved by white citizen councils uh, versus his classic traditional Elvis and he sticks with the classic stuff um, but yes it's kind of a, and then you it's framed so the the concert in real life did happen the same day as the segregationist rally not at the same time, uh, which the movie kind of, he's on, kind of on stage. And he's like kind of making a decision about what he's going to do. Um, and the rally, which is three miles away, you can like kind of hear uh, the senator's voice drift over <laughs> across the Memphis skyline into the um, the ballpark where Elvis is playing. Uh, and then, you know, he makes the decision to stand against, I guess the movie is telling us at least, uh, stand against racism and uh, segregationist forces by singing Trouble and wiggling his finger. Uh, so... Yeah, I mean, it's, it was a real threat, right? And just, I thought as well, um, something that stuck out to me and that has kind of like continued with me in my research uh, has been the sense that so much of the racial anxiety felt in the South was sexual. And that, again, like Elvis, right? It's just like this sexual being. And again, like in kind of this down, this, this montage of white backlash against Elvis is his nickname Elvis the Pelvis. And that these moves were just, you know, he's kind of seen as like a, uh, vulgarity right right that as so many people were alarmed when they saw him performing yes. on television right of the famous stories of like don't show him below the waist <laughs> <laughs> you know and I, I think something else that uh, I, I love that they play the sexualized aspect of it along with the racial, that these two things mm. are happening simultaneously. And so yeah. often we sometimes simplify these mm. conversations. So is this about gender or is it about race? Which I, I think that, you know, obviously these things are happening yeah. simultaneously. The yep. fact that the way that he moved was sexually scandalous goes alongside the fact that he was moving the way that people moved on Bill Street, yeah. right? And, uh, you know, even his hairstyle, was very similar to the same hairstyle that B.B. King was wearing at the same mm -hmm. time. So people yeah. are looking at him and they're seeing all these ambiguities, right? The uh, aesthetic that some people found to be a little feminine, but that they also found as being black and therefore also sexual. Mm -hmm. That I, I think, again, it's why I liked the 50 section, because a lot of those things that we're talking about as historians you can see portrayed visually and sonically in the film. Yeah. I guess, so obviously you really enjoyed the 50 section and I kind of guessed also, maybe that would be your favorite part. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, what did you make of the 60s and 70s then? Because it, it, you know, the, the movie doesn't completely drop his, uh, like I guess, Southern roots throughout those parts, but definitely, I mean, it doesn't become the focus as he kind of moves on in different aspects of his career. Right. You know, I thought there was a moment when they kind of fast forwarded through the 60s. I thought the 60s, early 60s. Oh, it's like 10 years. So fast. Yeah. All of a sudden. He gets back from like, Germany and it's like, whoo. Right. I was like, wait, we're in 68. King and Kennedy yeah. are assassinated. What? Yeah. <laughs> right? it, it jumps so, straight to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The violence of 1968 happens very, very rapidly. So uh, I 
being an historian, I knew where we were when mm -hmm. they mentioned the King assassination and then uh, Robert F. Kennedy. So I thought, oh, okay, we're in 1968. But yeah. it does it does roll through that time very rapidly. I think to get us back to that kind of story about uh, some of the controversies in U.S. history that happened mm -hmm. during his lifetime. Of course, there are entire books and courses about 1968, right? So right, yeah. That they want to sit there. But then also they show the stylistic changes happening yes. with rock and roll mm -hmm. in that moment too, which I think why they wanted us to get to 68 also because there's a new form of rock that yeah. is evolving and can Elvis find a place for himself mm -hmm. sonically, musically in right. that in that particular era? So while watching it, I thought, okay, well, that's why. They kind of right. wanted I mean, to speed through the 60s. It would be, I think, yeah, I think the um, the punchy little montage they have of introducing him in like kind of Hollywood Elvis with um, the mashup of Viva Las Vegas and Britney Spears Toxic, which is still not on any soundtrack um, <laughs> <laughs> somehow. Uh, but but I, I think it's a great way to kind of the juxtaposition of Britney and Elvis, fascinating. But... Yes, also that, right? Yeah. Oh, yes. I even thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, okay. <laughs> Both like Southern people. Okay. Anyway. Um... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you know um, when I think it's lost. Uh, this is <laughs> maybe a tangent, but when Britney Spears first started, a mm -hmm. lot of the writing on her was linking her to Janet Jackson. Really? Like when, when people first saw Britney, they saw a blonde Janet and huh. it was it was very clear in her dance moves, especially that sort of uh, dance pop with some R&B flavor mm -hmm. to it. A lot of people compared her to Janet and in her first tour, she would do an entire Janet medley. Wow. Right? But, you know, I, I think that people forgot that when Britney first started, she did see herself as kind of like R&B flavored pop. But as she became more and more famous and more mainstream, that part of it kind of got diluted. got diluted. And then people started linking her more to more uh, a kind of whitened form of pop music. But wow. Britney constantly reminds you of that. Like on her Instagram in 2020, she did this, like she was singing soul music and talking about those are my roots. Right. Oh, and I, I think yeah. that there's a large history of this in the South. So, yeah, I was I was okay, interested in that, that, that little Britney Spears moment there. <laughs> no, that's like that's a great tangent. I love Yeah, Again, this is uh, the historian's eye. Right. And just like music fans eye as well. Yeah. I had no idea about that. Um, Britney's kind of that aspect of Britney's early career. Um, but no, I think it's great that we do get a montage of that um, because I do think ultimately it would have been a bit dour to spend too much time on Elvis's like decade of um, making out movies that increasingly had less and less returns um, and then jumping straight to the 68 comeback special which yeah 1968 is a year in American history um, also kind of yeah Elvis's comeback and it and that month the end of that montage also does bring in um, it's you know it's kind of shots of Elvis's for movies um, and then you, you bring in like bombs dropping you, you have your, you're not like Vietnam and you also see the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix so you're right, just kind of like these, like, basically, I guess, his legacy. But how does he contend with his legacy already when he's still a young man? Right. That's such a good way of saying it, right? Someone who, by that point, had been famous for so long, but was still young. But, you know, old enough to see people who have taken something that he uh, that he helped start, right? right? That it's gone in all these different directions by then. Can he still be uh, part? 
of this music industry, you know? So you see a lot of people being like, yes, Elvis, you're important, but maybe you're past your prime, you know? Right. And then he comes out in a little leather outfit, or not a little leather outfit, a leather outfit and says, no. <laughs> yeah. um, and the movie, I think that that whole like, comeback, I, you know, it's obviously dramatized um, by Bosler. There was no Chris, you know, it was always a Christmas special, but it, you know, it was never going to be like kind of like literally how the movie portrays as this um, singer sewing machine level of like in a sweater and like dancing Santa Claus is in the background and stuff, Christmas special. Um, but it is the way it kind of like heightens, um, especially the kind of the, the rapid pace introduction um, after he does kind of like the main black box singing where he kind of sings all his classics. Um, they bring out the gospel singers and then the, I think they call them whorehouse dancers and then the kung fu artists all at once. And Colonel Tom Parker is like, what? What's happening? Where is Santa Claus? <laughs> um and it's Elvis just being like, these are my roots, right? Well, maybe not the Kung Fu, um, but right. Just the gospel singers, especially, right. And kind of bringing him back to there. Um, and then also the seventies, you know, so then he's successful from that, you know, he had this kind of like new uh, Elvis with like a newfound career. And then he, from this Colonel Tom Parker gets him a gig uh, at the international hotel in Las Vegas. And we get this, again, this is like jumpsuit Elvis era. And I think maybe this is maybe my favorite scene in the film when he's putting together he this kind of like big band sound for the concerts and he's like mixing all these things and they play that's all right again uh but in this kind of new elvis sound and the movie takes us back to arthur crudup in um the the shack he hears him singing it as a boy and then elvis recording it at sun records and then to the present so kind of like the layers of his musicality and how he could kind of hear all these things and blend them all together because I think ultimately, I know a lot of people criticize Elvis for not being a very creative musician, right? He didn't really write most of his music. But I think the movie is getting across this point that he was a great producer or a synthesizer. Right. Yes, I, I think that uh, the use of music throughout to create a soundscape of his life very effectively conveys that. Yeah, th the movie continues, right? And um, it there's a sense that Elvis is more and more isolated from those or he, you, you get the sense that he as his Elvis sorry his um, Vegas shows go on he's isolated from the music that um, connected him uh, to these kind of like very like spiritualist and gospel roots that the movie shows us um, particularly through the death of uh, Mahalia Jackson right you know I, I think that's um one of the things I think by the way that the movie is sort of structured, again, we talked about how it starts in Vegas with Parker on his last days, but also that reminder of the significance of Elvis to Las Vegas. One of the things that came away from them thinking about is the that tension with Elvis that it reminded me of, how he's constantly pulled between those musical roots and something that's more accessible that makes him the international star. But then the more he gets pulled away from those Mississippi and Memphis roots, uh, the more out of sorts he seems as well. Yeah. You know, and I think that the uh, score and the soundtrack do a really good job of conveying that and then those moments where he's reminded 
of those yeah. roots again and right that struggle to try to find himself you know one thing that is interesting to me about elvis is what he means to a few of those places mm. like vegas and memphis because He's a huge figure in both of those cities. I think it would be so interesting for people to kind of do a book that talks about Mem Memphis and Elvis and Vegas and Elvis. Yeah, that there would are, be really interesting. There are two kind of versions of him. One of my friends who's from Las Vegas, she talks about like going in the supermarket standing in line and being behind an Elvis impersonator or <laughs> going to get uh, going to a nail salon to get a mani petty and there's mm -hmm. an Elvis impersonator next to them getting ready for a show and so she calls them the Elvi right? <laughs> she's like everywhere you go in Vegas you see the Elvi and yeah. I have another good friend in Memphis who says the same thing like every year in August to mm -hmm. commemorate the anniversary of when he dies in Memphis People just descend on this city and same thing, the Elvi come out, right? <laughs> and so his relationship to these places is such a huge part of memory. People go to Graceland. Some people mm -hmm. go every single year to commemorate him. It's a pilgrimage, exactly. And there will always be space for Elvis impersonation <laughs> yep. in Las <laughs> Vegas as well. So I think even Vegas and Memphis as two settings for mm -hmm. these different narratives of Elvis and who he is also, is part of that tension, right? The, the Southern boy on Bill mm -hmm. Street, right? He makes his way up to Bill Street versus this international icon who makes a comeback. And mm -hmm. Vegas is a key aspect of that. I think just even in thinking about his relationships to those cities, we see that tension as well. Right. I mean, Vegas is also styled as kind of like a city of second chances, right? Or it's... Again, it's like the Elvis song, Viva Las Vegas. Like, you know, if I'm down to my last dime, I can still make a comeback, um, which ultimately he did at the right. cost of his life. But um, yeah, it's an interesting, yeah, that would be, that would be really, yeah, I would love that. Like a, a look at Elvis through Memphis and Vegas. Yeah, I mean, there's so many more stories to be told about Elvis, right? right. <laughs> and I think that we are going to keep talking about him again and again because of all of these complexities you know there's so much about I, I think the movie also just constantly reminds us that he's southern you know right. whether it whether it's through the music whether it's you know the gospel music the country <laughs> the blues uh you know when he goes on tv and sings and his mother says they had you singing to a dog right and yeah. his his mom sees that as them as, ridiculing mm -hmm. Southerners on national television, which is also this layer to Elvis right. as well. People seeing The him, place of the South in the United States. The place of the South, exactly, exactly. Mm. I think as well, I found it really interesting that, so the music supervisor whose name is, uh, well, Elliot Wheeler did the musical score, um, but Anton Monstad did the music supervision. And I'm not sure which of them made this decision or if it was Lerman, um, but to kind of, anchor a lot of the movie around his version of Battle Hymn of the Republic, which was one part of Elvis's American trilogy, which he starts off by singing Dixie, Battle Hymn of the Republic, the spiritual, All My Trials, and then ending on Battle Hymn of the Republic as well, like kind of this very big bombastic thing. Um, 
and from what I understand, Elvis kind of saw it as like the story. It was called American Trilogy because it was a story of America from, you know, the Southern Dixie to the Civil War and then to um, reunion through black music. And again, like again, like hitting it home with Battle Hymn the Republic as well, kind of speaking to that southern past even though battle hymn is a northern um phenomena but it, i mean it is very evocative of the civil war period isn't it and kind of this right. like ongoing um uh the ongoing legacy from that right you know and it's uh that reminder that the south was a huge focal point during elvis's uh career right from as we talked about that his rise is against the backdrop of school desegregation and the rise in the public demonstrations of the civil rights era, that mm-hmm. all of this is playing out on television, right? The yeah. civil rights movement was heavily televised. And as a white Southerner whose music is often associated with black performance style, that he's also so tied to that history as well, that you know people were watching the South so mm-hmm. constantly and that, that visual aspect of it that the music that the movie plays with as well as tying that sonic history uh yeah. through elvis and his influences yeah the idea of region and yes. and him as a southerner i think sometimes gets lost in the way that we talk about him because he's such a u.s figure right yeah, <laughs> you he's know? just kind of like american right but no he's like so very american southern. Yeah. he's very very southern and one of the reasons why i enjoy making him one of the historical figures that I Mm -hmm. teach about in history of the American South because people at the time very much read him as Southern. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the, I mean, I think the South has such a big cultural export on us culture generally, but um, maybe that's a conversation for another time. Um, But I want to maybe getting into reception a bit. Um, You were right. I mean, there are so many stories we can tell about Elvis. Um, I think this kind of like, new wave of Elvis mania. I don't know if it's, I don't know how strong it is, but I de- definitely think it's there. Um, Sofia Coppola is working on an adaptation of Priscilla Presley's uh, autobiography uh, right now. So like they struck while the iron was hot and like they're working on that right now. And so we'll get another Elvis movie quite soon. Um, but yes, uh, speaking of Elvis mania, this movie did very well. Um, <laughs> Uh, it made 286 million against an 85 million budget, which is very well. Uh, very good job, Elvis, in the box office. Um, I believe it is the second highest-grossing music biopic of all time after Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, which is stings a little bit, um, but because <laughs> I don't think Bohemian Rhapsody is a very good movie. But that's a conversation for another time as well. It left um, a lot to be desired. <laughs> yes, yeah, I think that one maybe um, fails the uh, Dewey Cox test, um, but. Yeah, uh, critics were very receptive to Elvis. I think most people who uh, were more critical of it were just more critical of Bosman films anyways because he has such a distinctive taste. If you do not like his kind of frenetic uh, editing style and the way he just kind of approaches movies, then you probably will not like this movie. Um, and a lot of the praise focused on Austin Butler as Elvis, who um, a lot of people, I think, rightly focused on kind of capturing the charisma and natural uh, performance energy he had in a way that was not caricature or impersonating um, versus the Elvi that your friends uh, pointed out. <laughs> Historians, I mean, this movie came out in July, so there's not, I could not find a whole bunch of kind of like 
whole bunch of historical reception. I don't know if you've like had more conversations with maybe historians of culture, because I certainly don't talk to historians of 20th century culture um, that much. Uh, but uh, Tom Parker's biographer had a really interesting, uh, or I guess, interview with Variety, where she kind of, um, I guess, listeners, if you're looking for a very nitty gritty picking of like what is right and wrong in the movie historically, you can go to her interview because she goes through and picks out what they do get right and wrong throughout the movie. That's called Elvis Factor Fiction, Colonel Tom Parker biographer on what's real and what's not in the Boz Lerman biopic. Uh, but then besides her, and that her name is Alana Nash, um, Grant Wong for Smithsonian Magazine, who is also a historian of culture. Um, again, kind of talking about the same things we talked about here, this idea, how the movie uh, dealt with this idea that Elvis stole black culture for his own gain um and i think he kind of he opens his review with the idea that observers to continue to reckon with the man and the myth that was and is elvis presley and i think that's that's what the movie is right reckoning with this this the myth but he was a man also yeah i mean i think that there it's a perspective to take on elvis and as we've said there's so many others you can I'm I'm interested in the fact that uh, Coppola is doing an adaptation of Priscilla's story because you know that does get underplayed somewhat in yes. the second and third acts of the film. Mm-hmm. I I was glad that they actually did cast a very young presenting actor yes. to play because it drove home again just how young the age she difference was, between the two. Yeah, right, I think it's a very that, different story if you consider more of Priscilla. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the scenes where they're first sort of courting, she is a literal girl with a ribbon in her hair. And yeah. Well. And she was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She was 14 when they met. So, I mean, that's. Yeah. Elvis and, you know, 20s by then. it is. It's the, the story of these rock and roll stars and girls in their young teens. Right. It's mm-hmm. I mentioned Chuck Berry with a teen girl that he goes to prison for traveling across state lines with her. Jerry Lee Lewis, who just recently passed away, yeah. marrying his teen cousin. There are all of these famous stories about young girls and rock and roll. And it's complicated because those were a lot of the fan base, right? Mm-hmm. When you think about those performances, the high pitch screaming, it's because they're girls. They are yeah. literal girls, right? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, then it gets uncomfortable though, when you see that sometimes they married them, you know, that it's like, oh, so yeah, yeah, it, it's a, it's an unsavory part of that early history of rock and roll that we're still trying to grapple oh, with, I think, yeah. in, in popular culture. Oh, today, definitely. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. you know, yeah. Um, so yeah, so many different perspectives and stories that can be told Priscilla is being one of them. Yeah, mm. yeah so I think uh, that just about wraps it up then uh okay. talking yeah uh is there any final any final final thoughts you have or you know i i just wanted to say to you uh on a personal note how proud i am oh. of you <laughs> and everything that you've accomplished it is just such a thrill to be interviewed by you as a phd student and uh, i'm not one bit surprised that you're doing any of this i mean you were um Already, you know, such an energetic and uh, capable, motivated and smart student when I met you as an undergrad. 
And uh, I think that this whole project, the podcast is just wonderful. And uh, just, yeah, very proud and excited to see what you're doing. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, in the words of Elvis, but yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that, that means a lot. Well, I think with that, then uh, we will wrap it up on our Elvis episode. Um, thank you so much for joining, Tawana. It's been a joy, like, reconnecting and talking about this with you. Um, is there anything you would like to plug to the listeners, like where they can find you or your work? Sure. You can uh, find my work on the radio each week, which also streams on uh, kxci.org is the internet version of uh, KXCI Community Radio here in Tucson, Arizona. I host a show every Saturday called Soul Stories that looks at the roots and branches of rhythm and blues. And you can listen to it from around the world by going to the program page on KXCI if you're interested in that. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, I am cooking up a couple of books on rhythm Ooh, and blues history. A couple. Uh, one of them grew out of the other. I've got a project called Let's Rock a While, the one that looks at the history of gender and sexuality and the history of R&B. And an outgrowth of that, I started writing a very personal story about some of my childhood favorites, uh, the boy band New Edition, okay. who uh, get their start late 70s in Boston and who are still going as a kind of nostalgic R&B boy band kind of thing where people like me in their 40s are still going out to see them perform. And I was actually thinking about that when I was watching Elvis, that, you know, part of his comeback is because people who had been girls in the 50s still yep. loved him in the late mm -hmm. 60s and into the 70s. So they weren't teenagers anymore. They're grown women, but they were still willing to go pay and hear their childhood favorite. And that's kind of what I'm tapping into in this book about New Edition, what it has meant to be a fan of this group for 40 years of my life. So it's kind of a first person story, kind of auto ethnographic at the same time as kind of using them to talk about what black music was in the 80s and 90s. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I I look forward to all the, um, I guess, like histories of like a teenage girl fandom that we'll get. I'm sure we'll get eventually because we've had, well, like, um, I guess 70 years of it now, right? If we're yes. Basing it from Elvis. Yeah. Uh, well, that's great. Um, looking forward to reading both of those eventually. And I uh, am also looking forward to listening to more of your radio show as well. well I caught a bit you. of it before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, again, thank you for coming on. And I'm also a bit uh, not annoyed, but uh, we could have talked about like radio and like more about um, fandom, but that's fine. <laughs> we could spend a long time talking about Elvis. So with that, that I will say um, that has been our episode on Elvis. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us on Twitter at Flashback Histopod. That is at F-L-S-H-B-C-K-H-I-S-T-O-P-O-D. And we will be back again soon to take another look at American history on the silver screen. Until then, goodbye.